Hope can go so wrong in so many different ways and so fast. It's easy to hope in all of the wrong things. I mean, just think about it. There's so many different things we could place our hope in. And more importantly, we as human beings who are fallen, we lack wisdom to determine what to hope in. We are, just thinking about how hope can go wrong in so many different ways, we are sinful people. In other words, we have a corrupted operating system, if you want to think about that. And we as sinful people, we live with other sinful people who have a corrupted, sinful nature. And we live in a broken down and cursed world which has a corrupted operating system. You just put all those things together and you can see how hope can go so wrong. We can hope in so many different and ultimately wrong things. So just consider, if we consider, if you consider maybe, humanity's main problem to be, let's say, the the, the world that is broken down. And so maybe you might think, okay, people are starving all around the world. Right, you could hope and put salvation in eliminating world hunger. And you think, oh, that's good. That is what's going to bring uh, the glory of salvation. So you might think that this is what saves, but really this fails humanity. Great as solving world hunger might be, you know, does solving world hunger, does a full belly of a dictator permanently pacify his rage? Full bellies do not suppress the greed of human traffickers. Full bellies don't change hearts. So to hope in solving world hunger will in fact disappoint. It's a wrong, it's a wrong hope. Some of us here might think that the main problem, to move on to a different situation, some of us might think that the main problem is, let's say, the sinful people out there who cause you some sort of suffering. And so then, therefore, in reaction to that, we might be tempted to hope in those that we think will not cause us suffering. So you can hope in your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your spouse, your parents, etc., to provide you in the ultimate solace and protection and love. A perfect relationship, you say, is what will bring you salvation. Well, friends, if that is you, I hope you adjust your expectations as soon as possible. Remember, friends, you are a sinner living with another sinner in the world that experiences the effects of sin. So the verdict is that your spouse will let you down. What's interesting is that even if, even if you get the main problem right, your hope could still be misplaced. So, for example, if you get the main problem right, that we have rebelled against God, that sin dwells in our own hearts and minds, and that we need a new heart, you can still go on to place your hope in yourself. I'm going to control myself more. If I just deny myself more, that's what will bring the glory of salvation. But that too doesn't make sense. I mean, who goes about fixing corrupted nature with corrupted ability? You can't. The verdict is that we fail ourselves. We don't bring ourselves final salvation. So what then is the right thing to hope in? A hope that will never fail. Well, we are Christians, and if you are visiting the church, you guessed it. You're right, the preacher is going to teach the Bible, and the answer is God and his never-failing love. Our passage makes this very bold statement and says, Christian hope never fails. The reason, because God never fails. Christian hope never fails because God never fails. That's kind of the big idea that we look at today. I go in, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 5, and we are in chapter 5, verses 5 to 11. Romans chapter 5, verses 5 to 11. Go ahead and turn there with me now. And uh, we're going to focus on 5 to 11, but I'm actually going to read 1 to 11 just so that we get an understanding of the context here. Last week, we looked at 1 to 4. This week, we continue with 5 to 11. <clears throat> Look there at 5.1. Paul begins this section saying, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 
Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. If you're joining us for the first time, we are going through the letter to the Roman Christians written by Paul the Apostle, a man used of Jesus Christ to lay the foundation of the church. And he served as a missionary who traveled around the Mediterranean, uh, the Mediterranean Sea there, planting churches, encouraging Christians. And he was writing this letter in the mid-50s A.D. Uh, to encourage the church. So he's so clear, as we're going to see a little bit later, he's so clear in defining for us what the gospel is. And he also writes to enlist the Roman Christians' support. He had never been to Rome uh, to visit the Roman church there, although he did know some people of the Roman church. So he writes them this letter. He sends his greetings there, explaining the gospel and encouraging them and enlisting their support as he wanted to take the gospel to Spain because, as Romans chapter 15 says, the gospel hadn't been preached there yet. So he's, he's doing what, what a man of God does, what a missionary does. What an apostle does is that he is laying the foundation of the gospel laying the foundation of the church. In explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know, the gospel means good news. Paul first explains, though, the bad news. So just to summarize here, in Romans chapters 1 to 3, he discusses the fact that all have sinned against God, the creator and maker, whether they be pagans or God's Old Testament people, Israel. He says everybody has sinned against God. All have turned aside and they pursue what they want instead of what God the King wants. We have sinned against God. Look there at Romans 3.23 for an excellent summary. It says there so clearly for all Jew or Gentile, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have, as Paul goes on to say, earned this condemnation. We face God's wrath, his eternal wrath. The Bible says, even in hell. But, right, in comes the good news, right? He's getting to the good news. In 323, sinners can be justified by God's grace as a free gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is, we can be declared righteous even though we are unrighteous by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. And chapters 1 to 4, right, he's just laying out the, he's just laying out the facts. Unrighteous people can be declared righteous, not based on anything that you do, but based on God and his work in Jesus Christ. He put forward his son to be the sacrifice of atonement. So where we deserve judgment, God's wrath, God provides a substitute in his righteous eternal son. Now, chapters 5 to 8, which we cracked last uh, a couple weeks ago, here we are reminded of all of the blessings, the benefits that come in the Christian life. This is, these chapters are all the so what. I mean, there's other so what's, but five to eight, he looks at the so what's. So look there again at, at Romans chapter five, verses one to four. These are the implications of now being declared righteous in God's sight. Verse one, you have peace with the king. Genuine peace, even though we were the rebels against God. Verse two, we have ongoing access to the king's resources of grace in which we stand. We can keep on, we can go back for more and more. And then also in verse two, we have a hope, hope in the coming glory of God. It's entirely appropriate that Paul deals with hope here because the Christians were in need of hope. They were going through suffering, suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. So, so just imagine this. Imagine if you were one of the rebels against God the King. And then all of a sudden, your allegiances change to the king that you once tried to overthrow. How are your feble, your, your old friends, your, cur- the current rebels going to treat you? The Roman Christians were persecuted for the faith. 
And Paul himself, a Roman citizen, who is the one who experienced great persecution. And so he writes to suffering Christians, encouraging them and strengthening them in the Christian's hope. He writes to us, as God's word is for us as well, encouraging and strengthening our hope in God and his salvation, God and his promises, that suffering cannot touch at all. You look there at verse verse 3. He speaks about hope, but there in verse 3 he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces, he returns now once again to hope. And here's our passage, it begins there, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This brings us to point number one, the promise. Point number one, the promise. Hope will never let you down. Hope will never let you down. And hope, it says there, does not put us to shame, even in our suffering, even in our persecution, even in our wrestling with sin. Hope does not put us to shame. One translation puts it that hope does not disappoint. It'll never let us down. It's a bold, incredibly bold statement. Your hope in Jesus will never let you down, ever. We know what it's like to be disappointed, right? And even more specifically, we know what it's like for things that we trust in to just go ahead and let us down. And of course, that whole process is so incredibly difficult. It it reveals misplaced hopes. It reveals our own idolatries, the things that we are hoping in. But Paul says that there is a never-failing hope for those who hope in the right things. That's the key here, those who hope in the right things. For those who hope in the glory of God. He says that hope will never disappoint because God is God. And what he has promised in the past will come to pass in his good timing. Now that right there is key. It's something that you want to you want to write down here. The hope that will never disappoint, or the hope that never disappoints, um, is based in God. And the fact that what he has promised in the past will come to pass in his good timing. Now, there there are some, maybe even you here, maybe even some of you guys here, who might claim that this promise is bogus. You might question this. You hear, hope will never disappoint. And you might even think right now, depending on what you're dealing with, that this is bogus. It's a lie. And you yourself know that you're trying to, you're struggling to believe in these things. And I know this from personal experience. Looking back at my situation, though, I can see that I wasn't hoping in the glory of God. I was hoping that God would be a servant to my own selfish glory. All right, so in your own suffering here, if you're wrestling to struggle, if you're struggling here to, to really believe that God says that your hope in God will never disappoint, never let you down, never be put to shame. Think about this, right? Are you hoping in God's glory? I know for me, my hope was not in God's glory once again. It was in uh, the fact that God would be a servant to my own selfish glory. My hope was not based in what he had actually promised in his word. My goal was not to see what he had promised come to pass. My goal was to see what I wanted come to pass. And I wanted him to work according to my own timing. So naturally, when God did not do what I wanted, what I thought was best, according to my own selfish purposes, according to my own timing, I despaired. I was disappointed. I lost hope. I wrestled with depression in the past. Because of whatever it is. Some of you might be disappointed in the faith even right now because you might be going through some sort of suffering and you feel, you so feel like you're being put through the grinder. Relationship not working out. Family not working out like you want it to. Your job situation not working out like you want it to. Even still wrestling with sin, you know, that your sanctification isn't going as fast as you would like it to. And maybe your desire there is to really, you know, want to please other people and not the Lord. Well, friends, did you know that the Roman Christians were going through suffering as well. A deep suffering. It's the reason why Paul actually writes a lot of his letter, the encouraging portions there, to strengthen their hope. And he wants their hope to be shaped by the word of God. He wants their hope to be rooted in God himself. 
He wants them to trust in what God has promised in the past and that it would come to pass according to his timing. He wants them to trust in God's timing and his will. So friends, if you suffer, know that God has already brought you and will bring to you his faithfulness. He's going to bring his faithfulness to bear in your life. He has already, if you are a Christian, brought his recreative power to your life, causing you to be born again. And he will bring his recreative power to this world. But he calls you to trust in his timing, not in your own. Wonderful thing is that we can hope in God, right? This is not wishful thinking here. This is not uh, something something that might come to pass and we just don't know. This is a rock-solid hope that our king will make his reign and rule fully known to every single inhabitant uh, in his universe. And at that day, his righteousness will fill up the land where he is glorified, he is worshipped and praised and vindicated, and his people will be as well vindicated as Christ gathers his people according to his steadfast love. So remember that, Christian. Christian hope will never disappoint because God is who he says he is. And what he has said in the past will indeed come to pass in his good timing. That's why Christian hope will never disappoint. So if you come to the table of Christianity and you bring all of your own expectations that aren't found here, you will be disappointed because that might not necessarily be God's plan for your life. But if you come to Christianity with God's expectations, according to his timing and his purposes, with the sole purpose of glorifying God for your good as well, then all of a sudden we can rejoice even in difficult times, which is exactly what we see Paul doing. It's exactly what we see that many Christians doing here in Scripture and in Christian history. So then here we should be checking our own expectations. Do we hope in the glory of God? Do we hope in what God has promised according to his word? And do we hope according to his timing? So this is the Christian's hope in the context here. And this hope, Paul says, is the one that will never let you down. Why? Because God loves us. Here we come to the principle. Point number two, the principle. Because God loves us. Look there, verse five. Hope does not disappoint. Doesn't put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, right? So there we see the reason why this hope will never let us down. God loves us. So if you have ever been shaky on your future hope, maybe you feel a little bit hopeless, maybe you feel like God has forgotten you as you wrestle with any number of sufferings in your life, maybe as you wrestle with indwelling sin, here we are reminded of God's unfailing love. Now, there's a lot going on in this verse, important stuff. Questions like, well, what is this love? Who is the Holy Spirit? What's his role in connection to God's love? And we can just go on and on on and on. The first thing that I want us to notice amidst all of the things here is that your confidence, Christian, your confidence in God's future deliverance is based in what? God's work in the past. So if you are shaky about what's going to come in the future, here Paul directs us back to something, namely God's love for us in the past. So if you are timid, if you are uh, insecure, unsure, or anxious, or skeptical, skeptical, wondering about God's love and whether or not His love is going to deliver you in the future, know that your worries are to be quieted by looking to what God has already done in Jesus Christ. That's the logic of God's word right here. Hope in God's future deliverance is anchored in God's past work in the gospel. In the gospel. I thank God for the language that Paul uses right here in this passage here. It's a language that God himself inspired, right? Paul was inspired of God. He was carried along by the Holy Spirit to pen these very words. And all of these these words are so relational, aren't they? You can tell he's really he wants us to be rooted in God's love. They are relational. So, um, you know, we've been looking at the language of justification, for example, right? That's like legal language. You get, you get the metaphor that we all as guilty sinners stand before a holy and righteous judge and, and, and God declares us righteous. But that's like one facet of the diamond of the gospel. Very important facet. Here's another facet here. Not only is he righteous judge, he is also loving father. 
So you can't separate those two things. Now, I understand and I believe that justification, the fact that God declares us righteous, is the logical priority. In other words, God is not seen to adopt into his family. You know, people who are unrighteous and who are hostile to God do not experience the benefits of God's salvation, right? You need to be declared righteous logically before you are adopted into his family. You need to be declared righteous before you are, you know, any number of metaphors here, redeemed or born again and things like this. Um, now, now in time, they all happen at the same time. Uh, but logically, I understand justification to precede other things, even with union with Christ. Uh, but, but anyways, here my point is that, look, we've been looking at justification language, legal language. Well, here comes family language. Here's loving father language. It, it is uh, in Romans 8, right? God is Abba Father. Abba just, just uh, Aramaic for father. If you look at verse 5 here, this is relation, relationship language. He gives us his very own spirit. You get that there? It's indicative of God's presence with his people as they suffer going from this land to the next. You know, in Scripture, the spirit of God is known to be a helper. A helper that comes alongside of God's people, leading them into deeper and deeper truths of Jesus Christ so that we might know and comprehend the Father's love to sinners in His Son. That's, a, that's what the Spirit does. If you look, if you look there, at, turn over to John 14. John chapter 14. And here's Jesus, right? The, the Spirit is only dumped out upon man Um in a unique way in salvation history once. Once in, in salvation history in a unique way in order to build up the church, okay? That's Acts chapter 2. So here, this is before the church has been established. Jesus is going away. He knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to be raised from the dead. He knows he's going to be seated at the right hand of the Father. This is what he says. He says there in verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 16, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even, which means that is, the spirit of truth. Right? Okay, turn over to verse, uh, turn over to chapter 16. He expands on the coming of the spirit here. Now, oh, by the way, I'm taking a long time, a somewhat long time to talk about the spirit. This is the first time in, in Romans, uh, where the spirit actually appears, right? So we want to give time to the spirit. Uh, so we're going back to what Jesus has to say about the spirit. You look there at verse 7. Um, the point here, he says, look there in the middle of there. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That's his plan. The spirit is going to come. Now look there in verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. There you see there, the role of the Spirit. He will glorify Jesus. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So you see there, the ministry of the Spirit glorifies Jesus Christ. So that's why, you know, some people describe the Spirit as being, you know, the the shy one, the one who takes the backseat to glorify and exalt Jesus Christ. He's going to take Jesus' truth and lead the apostles into greater truth, who then go on to write us Scripture. I think the Spirit still works in this way. He takes God's Word and He applies it to our hearts and helps us understand it more and more and more. So the Spirit teaches us the teachings of Jesus. John chapter 3, here's another another thing that the Spirit does. The Spirit gives us the new birth. He, he opens our hearts so that we might receive and believe the gospel. Once again, that's leading us into the truth of Jesus. And the Spirit of Christ applies all of the benefits of salvation that have been won by Jesus to his people. So if you're taking notes, you're a simple and useful way to remember what each person of the Trinity does in the role of salvation or in the role of uh, or sorry, in redemption history. You can think about it this way. The Father plans salvation. This is very simple, maybe an oversimplification, but still useful. The Father plans salvation. The Son accomplishes salvation. And the Spirit applies the benefits of salvation to the believer. The Father plans salvation. The Son accomplishes salvation. The Spirit applies the benefits of salvation to the believer. Now, of course, this is all in redemption history. Uh, we don't want to separate it too finely in terms of, uh, you know, what the Father does. You know, definitely the Son is with the Father and the Spirit is with the Father and the Son. 
Anyways, Paul here in Romans chapter 5 is reminding Christians about the benefits of salvation, right? They are loved by God, and the Spirit tells you so. Paul returns and elaborates on this wonderful subject in Romans chapter 8. Go ahead and turn there. Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 7, 14 to 17. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, I said that, uh, Romans 5 to 8, you know, are kind of like a unity. Uh, it's a separate section. What Paul brings up in the beginning of 5, he returns to the end of 8, things like this. So it's natural that here he's returning to the subject. Look there at 8.14. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Some of you guys might be fearing right now, wondering about your sin things like this, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, which is Aramaic for father, Abba, father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see that parallel there in Romans 5 and then Romans 8? It's really similar there. Romans 5, he talks about security and the love of God known by the Spirit. Verse 8, he talks about security of the children of God with God as their Father. See there, to have the Father is to have the Father's love. Okay, so if you guys right now, some of you guys might be saying, well, man, I don't really feel assured of God's love for me. I don't feel it. I want assurance, but I don't feel it. Friends, you know that your feelings can be misleading? You should be naturally suspicious of your feelings. Remember, sin has corrupted all of our faculties, including our emotional ones. So let me encourage you, if you want to be assured of God's truth for you, begin with truth. This is where Paul leads us to. He leads us to the truth. Look at verse 6. I mean, where does Paul go after talking about the love of God in the Spirit, the Spirit who's been given to us? Where does he go in chapter 5, verse 6? He goes to the gospel. Christ dying for the ungodly. He does not say, look to your feelings to determine whether or not God actually loves you. He says, hey, look, if you want to know that you are loved by God, he says, you look to the fixed and undeniable facts of God's gospel of God's love in Jesus Christ, the historical realities that the eternal Son of God actually did take on flesh, that He actually did live a righteous life. These are the objective truths of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is proof positive of the love of God for you, Christian. This brings us to point number three, the proof. The proof, God's love in Christ. Verses 6 to 8. The proof, God's love in Christ. I'll go ahead and read that. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see the logic there, verse 5, he's talking about we know God's love to us, for us. It's been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit has led us into the gospel truths. Now, what is the gospel, you Christians? Verse 6, while we were still sinners, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Okay, so we've already looked at the promise. Hope will never let us down. The principle, because God loves us. Well, how do we know God loves us? Verse 6 to 8, the gospel. This is proof positive, as we see there, for an explanation. And here he's just going to explain what this love is. So if you guys, once again, are unsure, uncertain of God's love for you, if he's actually going to deliver you here, let's look at the different facets of God's love. He says that this is an abiding love. This is an abiding love. It's not just God's past love for you, Christian. This is God's present love for you. Isn't that interesting? Verse 8, God shows Present tense. He demonstrates present tense. His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died past tense for us. So then you gotta think, okay, I don't really understand this past event that happened almost 2,000 years ago. Uh, why does he say that he shows his love for us right now? 
Well, friends, while the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was, in fact, a one-time thing, the benefits are ongoing. They go into eternity future. I mean, just think about the concept of adoption, right? Think about the concept of adoption. If you were adopted into a family, you know, you go through a legal process. One day you might stand in front of a judge, papers are signed, but that moment doesn't just end, or at least those blessings don't just end as you are adopted by the family. The blessings are ongoing. There is an ongoing relationship with your new family. You experience the blessings, the love of your new parents, love maybe of your siblings, and you therefore get to experience the resources of that family. Same with God the Father. God the Father adopts us. There is a a one-time thing, but there are an infinite amount of blessings under the Father's care, experiencing His infinite resources. That's what happens there in the gospel. This is uh, the fact that the benefits of God's love are ongoing. You know, it's written of elsewhere in Scripture. In Ephesians chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to turn there. Ephesians chapter 3, um, this here is a prayer by the Apostle Paul, and he actually prays that Christians who already know the love of God would enter in more and more into the love of God, that they would know Right To comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This overflowing fullness of God that you may be filled with it as we come to know the love of God more and more. God's love is shown and known but the full depth of God's love, friends, we get the opportunity to know more and more of it. God is inviting us into it. And while it is true that we may differ on how much, you know, we as individuals might understand compared to another individual, there is, though, the fact that every Christian has a basic and sufficient knowledge of God's love for us in the gospel. It's good enough, right? What we do know, we should enter into it more and more, but what we know is still good. We can still know it truly, even though we haven't known it exhaustively. And here Paul helps us review it, right? He's already said that this is abiding love. Next he moves on, and and a good way to summarize here is that God's love is in Christ is merciful and gracious. God's love is merciful and gracious. God's saving love flows with a torrent of God's mercy. God's mercy is defined by God choosing to not give us what we rightly deserve. Scripture is clear about the fact that we are sinners and the fact that we what we have done to God is that we have rebelled against Him and we have earned for ourselves just condemnation, we have sinned. He says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. We even go and give ourselves into idolatry. In some ways, he goes on to say, look, we honor and give glory to our pets more than we honor and give glory to God, our very Creator. We exchange the glory of God for physical things, idols, the idols of our hearts even. You look there, you you notice, as we read through the passage from 6 all the way to 11, you notice the words that were used for us as human beings who have rebelled against God. You look there in verse 6, we were weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He goes on to say there, in verse 8, we were sinners. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, we were enemies. So it says, weak, ungodly, sinners, even enemies. It's very clear what we are. And because of these things, we deserve God's righteous wrath and eternal judgment. But God, because He loves mercifully, He withholds the judgment that we rightly deserve. So His, 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 uh, so the gospel, in the gospel, there is God's mercy. But not only does God love mercifully, He also loves in Christ graciously. The judgment we rightly deserve, he bears upon himself. He receives it in order that we might be saved, not just freed, but we have been saved to Jesus Christ. Now, some of you guys might think of salvation as in God sort of begrudgingly goes down to the prison doors and he unlocks the doors with, you know, still experiencing a degree of bitterness because of you rebels. And then he opens the doors and lets us fend for ourselves as we escape his reign. That's how some of you guys view God. You almost conceive of God as some animal who plays with his prey before devouring them. But this is not true. 
God's love in Christ is so filled with compassion, mercy, and grace that in his salvation of sinners, Christ not only frees us as prisoners and bears our punishment, takes our place, but Christ then ushers us into the king's very court. He seats us as princes and princesses in his kingdom, children of God, heirs with Christ. And in the king's court, we who were once his enemies have genuine peace with God. We who were once his enemies are now granted unlimited and un- ongoing access to his grace. And under God's protection and rule, there is now hope in God's glory. God's love is merciful and gracious. God's love also, according to this passage, is unconditioned on us. Not only is God's love for sinners filled with mercy and grace, God's love is completely unconditioned on anything on us. In other words, his love is not based on who we are and the good things that we've done. Did you notice, once again, the words there? Weak, that is morally weak, unable. We are unrighteous because of sin. Not only that, but we are ungodly, we are sinners. Verse 10, once again, we are enemies, we're hostile to God. But Christ died for us. Regardless of what we were, Christ died for us. It's totally unconditioned on us, but totally conditioned on who God is. Christ died for us, not because we were morally capable, not because we were righteous by nature, or because we had done righteous deeds, or even because we were inclined to righteousness. It says there, Christ died for us while we were still sinners, which means the love is substitutionary. The love is substitutionary. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. That's what it says there. And this here should baffle us. Okay, this means that God had created us right in the beginning. God created us to be in a relationship with him. We rejected his love. Now, what would you do at that point? Just think about when the last time someone rejected your love and your care and your provision for them, and they basically cursed your face. Oh, I mean, what, what do you experience in your heart there? Most people, it's anger, it's retribution. If you fear man, maybe it's not that. Maybe you want to disregard their sin and just you want relationship, but that doesn't make you just or righteous. You know, you kind of throw out justice and righteousness and holiness if you do that. But what does God do? Even though we had already rejected his love for us, he continues to pursue us. This is amazing. So much so that he, t- he, he, he stands in our place. This is Christ who dies for his enemies. This is the point of verse 7. As I understand verse 7, he says, to paraphrase Paul, look there, you know, we might hear the very rare story of someone giving their life for a moral person, right? A righteous man. A little more likely, maybe we'll hear of someone giving their life for a good person, right? A benefactor or a philanthropist, someone who commits to helping other people. But even at that, it's, it's occasional stories. Maybe we hear about these things. But who dies for their enemies? God dies for his enemies. God the Son dies for his enemies. God shows his love for us as sinners who are worthy of his wrath, who do not seek good, whose mouths are open graves, who stand condemned before God. Christ dies for them. Christians, it says there that in that while we were still sinners deserving of death, Christ, God sent Christ to die in our stead. This is motivation here. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, we are not to think primarily, well, you know, God's love is so great because the world is so big. There's 7 billion people in the world that exist on the world now. And then we can add to that all the people that existed in the past and all the people that exist in the future. We're not supposed to think, wow, God's love is so great because the world is so big. In other words, we look at the breadth of God's love and think this is amazing. We are, though, to think, wow, God's love is amazing because the world is so bad. The world is evil. The world is in darkness. That's how John uses the word world in the Gospel of John and also in his letters, 1 John, etc. God's love is, in fact, broad, but more importantly, it is merciful. God's love is gracious. It is sacrificial. It is substitutionary. It is forgiving. And it goes from the heights above the heavens all the way down into the depths of depravity on the mission to rescue and redeem and reconcile sinners to himself. Paul knew this gracious, rescuing love of God. 
He considered himself to be the worst of sinners, but yet he could humbly and joyfully say in Galatians 2.20 that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. This is the love that every Christian knows objectively to a basic degree. And in that love for us, we therefore can be confident and assured. This brings us to point number four, the prospect. Point number four, the prospect. Confident of God's future salvation. The prospect is that we can be confident of God's future salvation. This word prospect can be used in relation to something like a likelihood or a possibility. That's not how I'm using this word prospect here. I mean prospect as something anticipated, definitely anticipated. And what was definitely anticipated is confidence. Confidence that just as Christ drew us and gathered us to himself in the cross and in his resurrection, so he will shield us from the wrath and judgment to come. This is significant for all of us if you're a Christian. You have already been justified by God. It has already been made clear that God has is revealing His wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. It has already been made clear that through the cross, you can be made righteous, that is declared righteous. Now that's huge promises. Because when God returns, when Christ the Son returns, He will judge and carry out wrath. But if you see in verses 9 to 10, you see here the application of justification, the implication, the therefore. You look there in verses 9 to 10. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. Remember, these are the blessings that flow from justification that Paul piles one on top of the other that we might be anchored in suffering and even in the prospect of facing judgment. God says, no, you're going to be shielded from those things. The blessings are you have peace with God. You, Christian, have access to His grace. You have hope in the glory of God. You know the love of God. And here he says that you will be saved from the coming wrath of God. The logic here is given that God has already removed the greatest obstacle that stood between you and Him, Him and us, so all other obstacles that might separate us from God will be taken care of. Your sin, suffering, persecution. There's two different metaphors here used in verses 9 to 10. In verse 9, you have the courtroom metaphors, which we've been looking at, justification. God has justified us. Therefore, we're going to be spared from his wrath against all unrighteousness because we've been declared righteous. Verse 10, the relationship metaphor, given we've been reconciled through his death, we are saved through his life. This is expanded in similar language and thought in Romans 8.34 where Paul gives confidence to the Christian. He says there, Christ has been raised. He is at the right hand of God and indeed he intercedes for us right now. You see the, you see the application? So if you still experience fear that God might hold your sins against you, sins present, sins past, he says you have no need to fear. But you can have absolute confidence in God's love for you. Again, maybe you feel like God begrudgingly unlocked the prison doors for you and gives you time to get out before he gets after you. And he is still somehow against you in his wrath. Friends, that is not true. In Christ's sacrifice, in the sacrifice of atonement, the propitiation, God's wrath is dealt with. And so in Jesus Christ who died on the cross as your substitute, God, as he lays his wrath upon Jesus Christ, He therefore, as Jesus Christ bears the wrath upon himself, for all those who repent and believe, God's face is towards you in pleasure. It's in pleasure. And that's why I loved, uh, you know, what Roger was talking about as he opened up the scripture passage. You know, he's talking about, you know, the sort of mundane stuff of, of somebody who does laundry reconciling, you know, the mismatched socks. We know what it's like to experience that joy when something gets matched, when something gets reconciled. Imagine the glory and the joy of God as he reconciles sinners who were designed to be in a relationship with himself. He himself reconciles these things, and that little joy that we might experience in matching silly socks, God enjoys to an infinite degree because the real thing is matched together. His created people with his holy self, 
all through the blood of his son. It's amazing here. So if you are struggling, you're wrestling with, you know, is God still angry with me? Is God going to hold my sins against me at the end judgment? Keep in mind that the word of God says that God delights in his people. He delights in you, Christian. In, in your suffering, as you cling to the gospel that shows that Christ is worthy of being satisfied, is your satisfaction. He delights in the fact that you, in your suffering and battle against sin, that you would throw yourself at his feet because he is the one who will bring all things to pass according to his good timing. He delights in the fact that when you suffer and trust in the gospel, that everybody around you knows that Christ is worth suffering in because he is my savior. Remember in the gospel, Christ not only unlocks the prison doors and frees you, but he ushers you into his own heavenly courts and seats you there to be part of his family. You not only have experienced God's love in the past, but you continue to experience God's love for you in the present. Peace with God, access to God's full grace, hope in the glory of God. You know the love of God. And here we come to the end in our confidence. Given that is our prospect, we come to the praise. This is our conclusion. It is Paul's conclusion. We come to the praise. Given God's steadfast love for his people, Paul concludes that Christians can, in fact, rejoice in God. Even in bad earthly circumstances. Trusting in the fact that God is who he says he is, that what he has promised in the past will come to pass according to his great timing. And we can praise God for these things. Look at verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see what he's doing here? If you look at, as I read earlier, you might have caught on to it. He reaches back to what he's already said in verses 1 to 10. He says, more than that, we also rejoice or boast. He's just picking up what he said in verse 2. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings because we have the hope of the glory of God. And then verse 11, more than that, basically to summarize everything that I've said, Here's a, here's a conclusion. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's interesting here how the rejoicing is tied to what at the end? Just look there at the verse. What is the rejoicing tied to? The rejoicing is tied to the receiving. Praise God, he doesn't say we rejoice because we work so hard, because we all know that we don't work too hard. We don't work perfectly. He says we rejoice having received reconciliation. Not worked for reconciliation, received reconciliation. That's why we rejoice, because we know the truths of Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 3, that we all stand condemned before God. But because of God's great love, God effects reconciliation for sinners. On their behalf, when they deserve nothing but his judgment, he gives us mercy and grace, his abiding love, substitutionary love, and on and on and on. What else is there to do but to receive by faith and then also to rejoice? Now, Christian, here is where we know that we might not have our own wills aligned with God's will. Because if you are not rejoicing in these things, if you are not rejoicing in the things that we sang about, for example, if you're experiencing some sort of suffering, some relationships not working out, your career's not taking off as well as you thought it would, you don't have enough money as you thought you would, your health isn't going as, as well as you would, you hoped it would, and you cannot sing all my days, I'll sing the praises of his great redeeming love, you might not understand God's promises. You might approach the praise of God and the, the life here of the Christian as God is, you know, once again, he exists to serve you and your glory. That's not, that's not Paul's goal here. That hope will let you down, friends, if your hope is in human relationships and things like that. But if our hope is in God and the things that he has promised and according to his good timing, then we, in fact, can receive reconciliation, which is our greatest need, and rejoice in God. So it makes us wonder, you know, what exactly is your greatest need here today? Is it to solve world hunger? 
Is something's not working out the way you wanted it to? The stuff of the flesh not working out the way you wanted to? Or is your greatest need reconciliation? Because that's what Paul, that's what Paul's rejoicing in. That's how we as Christians know the love of God. He doesn't say based on the size of your bank account or your health that's going to last for eternity or so you hope. He says here, you know the love of God because he died for you, sinner, to bring you to know him. We looked at the promise. Our hope will never let us down because God will never let us down, which is the principle God loves us. We looked at the proof of God's love. It is him, God, giving his eternal son. We look, therefore, at the, conf- uh, the prospect, confidence in what's going to happen in the future, that God will, in fact, deliver us. And then we turn to the praise, which is our conclusion, praising, rejoicing in God. Now, I haven't spoken to you, non-Christian. If you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, here, the obvious thing that we should be doing is examining our hopes, which is the same thing for the Christian. And if you are not a Christian, you recognize that your hopes are placed in the wrong thing, Friends, God calls you to repent of your sin and trust in God. He says here that he has provided your greatest need. If your greatest need, to paraphrase one author, if your greatest need was economic, a bank account, then he would have sent an economist. If your if your only hope was, you know, to live forever, at least here on this earth, or to never experience any pain, then he would have sent you a very competent doctor. But he didn't. If your hope was that you would be entertained until you die, he would have sent you a comedian. But he knew, God knew that our greatest hope was that we would be reconciled to God himself, freed from the wrath of God, restored to our very creator. And so he sent us a savior to die on the cross for our sins so that everybody who would repent of their sins and believe would be forgiven. And upon his resurrection three days later, he showed all that payment has been made, that there is nothing that we need to do to pay for what we have done because Christ has bore it for us. And so now we can enjoy a right relationship, forgiveness with God, adoption into his family, and right standing before the Holy One. So friends, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus, repent of your sins and believe on Jesus Christ for salvation. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to rely on some nebulous, undefined spirituality that's based on present feelings, but we can look to objective truth. The fact that God the Son took on flesh to walk with sinners, out of love for sinners, and to even weep with sinners and to die on the cross for the salvation of sinners, all so that we would not only be pardoned for our sin, as awesome as that is, but we would be reunited with God the Father to experience all the wonderful blessings of your great love for us. We pray, Lord, that we would cherish the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that you would help us turn back again and again and again in our insecurity, when we are insecure, so that we would be confident of your promises in Jesus Christ. We pray these things for your name and your great glory, giving you all the praise. Amen.